Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1937, Europe was on the brink of war. All across the continent, lines were being drawn. Communism against fascism, nationalism against globalism, the rich against the poor. And nowhere was the struggle more evident than Paris, France. But as ideological battles erupted in the streets, the wealthy Paris elite still managed to distract themselves from the chaos. And on the night of May 16, 1937, a man named Raymond Dubray headed to the theater to do exactly that. Raymond and his fiancée picked up a friend at his place, then the trio made their way to the Paris metro. They stood on the platform alone, dressed to the nines, and giggling at one another as they waited for the train to arrive. When the train doors opened, no one came out. This wasn't a surprise. Raymond and his party were riding in the first-class car. The privacy was exactly what they were paying for. But when they entered the car, they realized they weren't alone. A woman in a beautiful green skirt and matching jacket sat beside the opposite metro door. The car was sweltering, but the heat didn't seem to bother her as her head hung peacefully down. Suddenly, the woman slouched, slid off her chair, and fell limply to the ground. As Raymond approached, he was shocked to see blood quickly pooling around her clothes. Then he saw the knife jutting from her neck. The next day, the newspapers called Leticia Tarot's murder the perfect crime. Leticia had entered the empty first-class car alone. When it arrived at the next stop, less than 60 seconds later, she was bleeding to death on the floor. Her murder was a locked-room mystery inside the Paris metro, and soon it would unravel a web of political secrets stretching out all across France. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Leticia Toro. This week, we'll cover her mysterious life and confounding death. Next week, we'll delve into who might have been responsible for her murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Leticia Tarot's complex, contradictory life started off simply enough. She was born on September 11, 1907, in the region of Valle d'Aosta, Italy. After World War I broke out in 1914, her father left his construction job and joined the fight. So Leticia spent much of her early years with her mother, Marie Nourissa, her sister, and two brothers. But as the war ended and the 1920s approached, their alpine hometown was far from the perfect place to raise them. Valais d'Aosta was close enough to the border of France that other Italians assumed they were French sympathizers. But to France, they were nothing but Italian fascists. Marie Nourissa wanted to get out of Valais d'Aosta as soon as possible. She yearned for something more than her small, limited life as a housewife. She wanted to move to the city. And for Marie, that meant leaving her husband as well. Oh, Henri, you startled me. Where were you? Oh, like I said, I just had to go to the store and pick up some stationery. The store closed hours ago, Marie. What would you like me to say? That you've caught me? Congratulations, I've finally been caught red-handed. You win! You better tell me where you were, or- Does it even matter? I was out being happy, out living life. And what's wrong with that? I know you'd rather waste away in this nothing place, but do I have to resign myself to that as well? I felt plenty in the war. The least you could do is respect me. Respect you? I... (sighs) Oh, I didn't mean to wake you, sweetie. Everything's fine out here. Go back to sleep. As police investigations later learned, Marie and her husband had become estranged. And one night in 1920, she decided that it was time to leave Leticia's father once and for all. So she gathered her young daughter and headed off towards the French border. The two settled in Lyon, France, where Marie soon struck up a relationship with a factory worker named Giuseppe Chatillard. All of a sudden, 13-year-old Leticia found herself in a new country, away from the father that she loved. And she was barely in Lyon long enough to settle in. Marie and Giuseppe broke up in 1925, and Leticia was uprooted once again. This time, they joined a wave of immigrants relocating to Paris. Immigration was booming in 1920s Paris. Over 10% of France's active male population died in World War I, and that left a gaping hole in the capital city's job market. Throughout the mid to late 1920s, over three million people poured into Paris, a third of which were Italian, just like Leticia and her family. The 18-year-old Leticia found herself right at home in the new city, and soon she discovered the place that would come to define the rest of her life, the Ball Musette Clubs. At the time, the Ball Musette were known for their accordion-based music and dancing style that was exploding in Paris at the time. The dance halls were centers of the city's nightlife, but they were hotbeds of the criminal underground, too. It wasn't uncommon for gangs, sex workers, and drug dealers to make the Ball Musettes their home. But the teenage Leticia wasn't afraid. When her brother, Virgilio, brought her to the Ball Musette, it was love at first sight. Well, what do you think? 
Virgilio, I'm speechless. There's a first time for everything, I guess. No, really. I've never seen people be so free. Look at that man over there. He's spinning like a top. That's one of my favorite dance moves. Excuse me, ma'am. Would you like to dance? I, well, gosh, I mean... Well, what are you waiting for? Dance with the young man. Leticia immediately became a fixture at various ball musettes around the city. She earned a reputation as a skilled dancer and a social butterfly. After spending most of her teenage years uprooted, she had finally found her place. The ball musette also gave Leticia a chance to reinvent herself. So that's exactly what she did. She started going by Yolanda. Nicknames were common in the dance halls, but Yolanda wasn't just a pet name for Leticia. It was a whole new identity. Leticia was a young Italian immigrant from an underprivileged family. But Yolanda was the most sought-after dancer in the club scene. Soon, even the French cops wanted to get to know her. At the time, the police had an entire network of women who they paid to inform them on the illicit activities at the Bal Musette. Yolanda was the perfect spy for them. She knew just about everything about everyone, and soon she was happily selling that information to the authorities for regular payments. It seems like that was just the beginning of Leticia's secret life as a spy. In the 1920s, Italy was in the hands of Benito Mussolini, a far-right fascist who wanted to keep tabs on Italy's citizens abroad. According to letters later found in Leticia's home, it seems likely that both she and her mother were working with the Italian Secret Service as informants as well. Leticia was playing both sides, taking money from France and Italy, all while she picked up extra cash dancing with wealthy men at the Bal Musette. But the income wasn't enough to support her. And so, in 1926, Leticia went looking for a real job. The now 19-year-old Leticia managed to find work at a Parisian pottery factory owned by the wealthy Tarot family. It promised a steady paycheck, but it wound up delivering way more. The Tarots had a 35-year-old son named Jules, who was handsome but painfully shy. One day, while visiting his parents' factory, Jules was struck by the magnetic personality of one of the lowly factory workers, Leticia. So I'm on the table dancing with this fellow, and he spins me, which is normally fine, but I didn't realize how close I was to the edge of falling off. Oh no, you didn't! I did. I spun right off the table, but instead of falling to the floor, the man I was dancing with earlier in the night catches me. He looks to my dance partner and he says, I think you dropped my date. <laughs> That's, um, quite the story. Excuse me, sir. I didn't see you there. No, there's nothing to be sorry for. Are you new here? This area is only for workers. <laughs> I'm not new here. But you must be. My name is Jules. Jules Tarot. Oh, my apologies, Mr. Tarot. I didn't mean to be distracted from work. I'll get right back to the production line. No, wait. It's fine. That place you were describing actually sounds lovely. Perhaps you'd like to take me sometime? And just like that, Jules and Leticia were in love. To Leticia... 
Jules was a gateway into the high society of Paris that most immigrants rarely got to experience. And to Jules, Leticia was a free spirit who brought him out of his shell and introduced him to the excitement of the Bal Musette scene. It didn't take long before the happy couple moved into an apartment together. But while Leticia proudly displayed jewels to all of her friends, she was a secret to the Tarot family. They didn't even know Jules was in a serious relationship. Some nights, Jules left Leticia alone at their apartment to sleep at his parents' house, just to keep up his bachelor facade. Still, the late 1920s were largely a happy time for Leticia. She was in love and living in a home that she couldn't have dreamt of just years earlier. But unfortunately, that was all about to change, and her past secrets were about to come back to haunt her. Coming up, we'll look at the end of Leticia's relationship and how she found herself in the middle of a political battlefield. Hi, podcasters. It's Carter. Like you, I have an eclectic mix of can't-miss podcasts that I listen to each week, and one of my favorites is Supernatural with Ashley Flowers. Every Wednesday on Supernatural, host Ashley Flowers explains some of the biggest mysteries in the world, taking you on a journey through baffling events and sharing all the possible explanations, no matter how strange or surreal they get. Whether it's sudden disappearances, alien abductions, or even mystifying murders, she presents the facts we know for sure and the theories that might be closer to the truth than we think. If you haven't had a chance to catch this Spotify original from ParCast yet, you're in for a wild ride. Follow Supernatural with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to our story. By 1929, 22-year-old Leticia had two thriving lives. By day, she was a free-spirited Italian immigrant who worked at a Paris factory. At night, she transformed into Yolanda, a star of the city's underground ball musette club scene. And thanks to her wealthy boyfriend, Jules Thoreau, she had someone to share both her lives with. But Jules kept Leticia carefully separate from the rest of his life. His parents didn't even know he was in a relationship with her, let alone serious enough that they were living together. This likely felt strange to Leticia, but when Jules proposed to her, she could only say yes. On December 21st, 1929, the pair were married. The ceremony was, unsurprisingly, secret. Both Leticia's father and brother were skeptical about her new husband's motives, even though Leticia's family was already receiving financial support from Jules. Your place is gorgeous, Leticia. Thank you, Virgilio. I picked all of the furniture myself. I think it's elegant. Elegant and expensive. Where's Jules? He's with his parents tonight. You know how it is. Right, right. When you see him... Thank you for the check. I was able to get a warm jacket for winter this year. How often do you see each other anyway? What's that supposed to mean? Just, I don't want him ignoring you. You're his wife, but... But what? But I never see you two together. I just want you to be careful. When am I not careful? 
While those around her were worried by the idea of her secret marriage, Leticia seemed to be just fine with it. Perhaps it was because she was seeing how the other half lived, or maybe Leticia was getting used to keeping secrets because she kept many as well. It's possible that Jules never knew about her former life as a spy. But perhaps that was all behind her. Her husband's fortune likely meant that she had no need to spy for the Italian Secret Service or the French police. All she needed to do was dance night after night with Jules. Unfortunately, her luxurious life wasn't built to last. In 1934, Jules developed a cough. When it didn't go away, the couple became worried. Leticia hurried him to doctor after doctor, but it turned out that Jules had a disease that no amount of money was guaranteed to cure. According to several records, he suffered from either throat cancer or tuberculosis. Regardless of the disease's name, his condition was getting worse by the day. Once Jules finally understood the seriousness of the situation, he sat down with Leticia to talk about her future. Jules knew that there was only one option to make sure she stayed safe and comfortable once he was gone. He had to finally introduce her to his parents. And so, as he lay on his deathbed, Jules invited his parents over to his apartment for what might have been the very first time. Jules, are you in here? (coughs) Over here, Father. Where are we, Jules? What is this place? This is... my home. Your home is with us. Actually, no, it isn't. Leticia, will you come in? Hello, Mr. Toro. Is this your nurse? Please tell me this is your nurse. No, father, this is Leticia. She's my wife. Don't say that. Listen to me. I want you to take care of her when I'm gone. She deserves everything. Well, it's no wonder you've fallen in. You've shacked up with a... a immigrant. You've brought this upon yourself. Please, Mr. Turo, let me explain. Jules died not long after that final confrontation with his parents in 1934. And the Turos never gave Jules his final wish. Instead of taking care of Leticia, they abandoned her completely and they made sure she never saw a dime from Jules' inheritance. The loss nearly broke Leticia. She began showing up to the Bal Musette, dressed strictly in black. It was the customary morning outfit for a grieving widow, but as time wore on, her Bal Musette acquaintances realized she wasn't changing back. Leticia was completely heartbroken. Jules meant everything to her, He was the only person who truly knew both sides of her. Without him and his support, she was forced to figure out new ways to make money. And so Leticia turned to her old ways. And the 1930s was a perfect time to get back into the spy game. The mid-1930s brought unprecedented economic hardship to France. Paris was split between the right-wing fascists and leftist communists, and the city regularly dissolved into violent protests. From the outside, Leticia had nothing to do with the political upheaval, but Leticia was actually turning the turmoil into a career. By 1936, 
Letizia had taken a position as a cloakroom attendant at a bal musette. But this was way more than just a menial job. The position gave her a front row seat for the people coming and going from the dance hall. Information that both the Italian Secret Service and the French police happily paid for. And it was during this time that she met a private investigator named Georges Ruffignac, who brought her even deeper into the espionage game. Ruffignac was the head of the Agence Ruff, a private detective agency. He was a round man with a thin mustache who was notorious for playing both sides of any case he worked. Ruffignac started paying Leticia for reports on various people inside the Ball Musette. It didn't take long before he realized that there was more to Leticia than met the eye. Well, that was fast. You sure you got everything? Mr. Frederici's cheating on his wife. There's not much to get. Are you sure you weren't seen? Of course I'm sure. A detective knows they can never be sure. You know, I could train you to be full-time at my agency. You'd fit right in here. Oh, that's all right, sir. I think I'll do just fine on my own. It's almost like you've done this before. No comment. As far as Ruffignac knew, Leticia was just a ball musette immigrant. But the experienced detective recognized her skills immediately. So after a series of successful small-time jobs spying on fascists around the ball musette, he sat Leticia down and pitched her on an even bigger job. She agreed right away. On November 1st, 1936, Leticia began a new job at the Maxi Factory, gluing labels onto shoe wax containers. But the 29-year-old Leticia wasn't there for just wax. Many of the workers were communist sympathizers who had recently decided to unionize. Leticia was there to find out everything she could about their union efforts and report everything to the factory supervisors. Leticia was spying on leftist communists at the factory by day and right-wing fascists at the Bal Musette by night. She was playing a dangerous game, and it wasn't long before Leticia had to pay the price. To keep Rufignac supplied with a steady stream of information, Leticia had to spend more and more time at the Bal Musette. And even though she was still visibly grieving her late husband by wearing black mourning dresses and her engagement ring, these nights at the dance halls soon turned romantic. Leticia started dating a whole variety of men in and around the Ball Musette scene. Perhaps it was a way to cope with the stress of spying or to keep up her cover, or she was just ready to move on from jewels. But in any case, her apartment soon began to fill with love letters from all her different flings. There were letters from military men who vowed to marry her when they returned. Letters from travelers who had romanced Leticia while they passed through Paris and vowed never to forget her. There were even letters from married men who promised that one day they could be together in the open. She had affairs with both communist and fascist sympathizers. But Leticia was never caught up on any one person for long. She likely didn't even have the time if she wanted. No one knew all the parts of Leticia's fractured life. She kept secrets from everyone, from her family to her boss, Ruffignac. But one night, it all caught up with her, and her secrets turned deadly. Coming up, we'll look at the night Leticia's life ended, and the precarious circumstances 
leading up to her demise. And now, back to the story. In 1937, 29-year-old Leticia Tarot found herself in Paris, France, on shaky ground. Since the death of her husband, she'd likely begun spying on both the fascists and the communists, using the Bal Musette around the city as her headquarters. And if that wasn't enough, she was juggling a series of lovers and romantic partners on a nightly basis. By April, Leticia began to feel the heat. She started confiding in a few people she could trust that she felt unsafe, but she never told them why. Whatever trouble Leticia had found herself in was a complete mystery to everyone around her. Even her private investigator boss, Rufignac, was completely in the dark. Rufignac had plenty of spies who worked for him, but none were as talented or as experienced as Leticia. He began to worry about her. Perhaps he had pushed her too far. Unfortunately, they were in too deep to back out now. The head of the private eye agency was shocked by the increased violence between both political sides. Protests had turned to riots, which had now dissolved into brawls in the streets. On March 16, 1937, a socialist and communist protest turned deadly when the police became violent. Five people were killed and over 300 were injured. Rufignac knew the city was going through more than some unrest. They were heading towards a full-on civil war. And soon, the violence in the streets made its way to Leticia as well. On a night in early May, Leticia narrowly avoided a dangerous situation as she stepped off the metro near her home. Ma'am, hold up. Oh, thank God. I think he's still following me. There's no one behind you, ma'am. He was, he was right on my trail. He cornered me as I got off the train. He had a knife and he held it to my throat. Who? Who had a knife? The man. I, I didn't recognize him. I just managed to get away. We should get the police. No. No, no, no police. It's no bother at all. He could be waiting to attack others getting off the train. I think that we should- I said no police. Wait, where are you going? Come back! Later, Leticia was evasive about the run-in but she seemed shaken up and nervous in private. But by the time that weekend came around, it all seemed behind her. She was the life of the party at the Bal Musette, as usual, and most of her acquaintances didn't even know that she had nearly been attacked. A few days later, on May 16, 1937, Leticia's younger brother, Henri, stopped by her apartment bright and early to spend the morning with his sister. He was excited. This was the first free day she had had in weeks. Henri walked inside with a box under his arm. It was a gift from their mother who had just finished sewing a matching skirt and jacket for Leticia. When he saw the outfit, Henri was shocked. It was an audacious, show-stopping green ensemble. A far cry from the usual black clothing she normally wore. But Leticia was excited to see it. And that wasn't her only surprising change that day. After Leticia slipped into the new clothes, her brother escorted her to the salon, where she allegedly had her hair dyed blonde, a completely new look for the woman. It seemed like Leticia was getting ready for something, but Henri couldn't say what. That night started out like they usually did for Leticia. She and Henri headed out to L'Hermitage, one of the most famous bal musettes in the entire city. 
By all accounts, Leticia was the life of the party. She was vibrant, excited, and a joy to talk to. But her happy facade started to crack as she danced with an old friend named Marceau Marneff. <laughs> it's always a joy dancing with you, Marceau. The joy is mine. I've never danced with a blonde Yolanda before. Oh, stop it. It's nice to see you like this. I don't remember the last time you weren't wearing black. It's a very pretty outfit. Yes, well, what can I say? You must be meeting someone tonight. Maybe. I shouldn't say. Listen, I have a very bad feeling about tonight, Marceau. The night is young. There's plenty of time to make sure things turn out well. I'm not so sure there is. Unfortunately, Leticia was correct. After finishing her dance with Marceau, Leticia left the Bal Musette and headed straight for the Paris Metro, seemingly headed back to her apartment. But she never made it that far. For some reason, Leticia headed towards the Metro's first-class car. This was somewhat unusual. In those days, the first-class car was rarely used and only frequented by the Parisian elite. Some high-class sex workers were also known for riding in the car, but there's no reason to suspect that Leticia had gotten into that line of work. Leticia waited on the platform for the first-class car in her green dress and newly dyed hair. She also had a strange pin on her lapel, a token of the Ligue Républicaine du Bien Public, an organization dedicated to public service. Why she was wearing the pin was a mystery, particularly since Leticia's friends thought she supported the fascists. It's possible that the whole outfit was some kind of disguise, but whatever Leticia was planning that night never came to be. At 6.25 p.m., Leticia Tarot entered what appeared to be an empty first-class car. It left two minutes later. It took about a minute for the car to reach the next station. But when Raymond Dubray stepped onto the first-class car, he unknowingly walked into a murder scene. He found Leticia crumpled and bloody, her green jacket stained with red. She had been stabbed right behind the ear. The knife was still jutting out from her neck. Bystanders raced for the police, but it was all too late. The police held dying Leticia on the floor of the metro station and asked Leticia a question that would haunt Paris for the next year. You're going to be okay, ma'am. Talk to me. I... I... Who did this to you? Can someone get the ambulance? Who did this to you? Leticia moved her lips but was unable to make any sound. By the time she made it to the hospital, she was already dead. It didn't take long for the coroner to rule Leticia's death a murder. According to the autopsy, it was impossible for Leticia to have stabbed herself with the force necessary to cause her mortal wound. The knife had also been lodged in Leticia's neck with precision, so it sliced both her carotid artery and jugular vein. Whoever stabbed her knew exactly what they were doing. It looked like Leticia Tarot wasn't just murdered. She was assassinated. The day after her death, a Paris paper called it the perfect crime. The killer had somehow gotten in and out of a moving subway car in less than a minute without ever being seen. But the paper didn't know that Leticia wasn't just an innocent immigrant girl. She had more secrets than anyone could have possibly imagined, 
and one of them likely got her killed. Soon, authorities began to peel away at Leticia's complex and convoluted story in hopes of finding her killer. But as they did, they uncovered a tangled web of lies and deceit that led all the way to a plot that would throw Paris into disarray and change all of Europe forever. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back Tuesday with part two of Leticia Tarot's mysterious death. For more information on Leticia Tarot, amongst the many sources we used, we found Murder in the Metro, Leticia Tarot and the Cagoule in 1930s France by Gail K. Brunel and Annette Finley Crosswhite, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Frank Spiro, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, K.G. Tang, Rebecca Thomas, Dan Velasquez, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Unsolved Murders